The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop trying to reinvent the popsicle and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 530 with guest Brad Frazier, recorded live Monday, February 8th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who has 10 seconds to get ready for this show, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut. It's snowy here. And uh, Richard in Vancouver, British Where it's Columbia. it's not snowy. Not snowy. Of course not. Never snows in British Columbia, does it? No, we keep our snow on the mountains where it belongs. Ah, very nice. Uh, Richard, I don't have any witty banter this afternoon. I'm just sort of out of it. So let's just get right into Better Know a Framework. <laughs> Excellent. All right, what do you got for me? So I went looking for things that I think would be helpful to uh, the listeners today. Yeah, because we've been talking always about the 4.0 framework. Yeah, but did you know there's some things that have been obsoleted in .NET 4? So I'm going to spend a few shows talking about those. Interesting. If you look in uh, the MSDN documentation about obsolete types in the .NET framework under .NET Framework 4, what's new in .NET Framework 4, You'll find a whole list. And one of them that I think is interesting is system.data.typeddataset.generator. Hmm. That will be removed in a future release. Please use system.data.design.typeddataset.generator, which is in system.design.dll. So the functionality is still there. They just moved it. Yeah. Also, system.xml.xmldatadocument mm-hmm. uh, is going to be removed in a future release. And really removed, not just moved. Really else. removed. But uh, that's okay, because there are new classes that do what that does. Right. Yeah. And uh, just, a, just a whole bunch in the list here. We'll go through them 
in some more uh, detail. So it's a deprecation shows. list at this point. The deprecation list, the All obsolete right. list. Richard, who's talking to us now? I have an email from Montreal, Canada. Okay. The other side of the country. Yeah. Hello, Carl and Richard. I just finished listening to show 520 with Yuval Lowy. Another one for Yuval Lowy. Yeah. During the show, you approach the serviceizing of components in a few ways. I have to say I'm not a big fan of WCF itself and see many drawbacks to the technology. However, where I do see massive parallelization of execution is by MSMQ. If you, if you make your business object serializable and look at them more like a messaging object rather than a data object, it makes a lot more sense. You can then develop a multi-threaded system, even across multiple machines, that would be very modular and isolated design and make the code reusable from the start and portions of the business application to be transaction-aware and recoverable down to the final processes. MSMQ does all this and also makes very scalable applications because of its queuing approach. Another technique similar to this approach is to use the CCR component from Robotics Studio, the same approach but without the transaction ACID rules around MSMQ, which will make it faster. All right. Thanks for the enlightenment. Carole Saint-Marie from Dorval, Quebec. Excellent. And Dorval's right outside of Montreal, for those who didn't know. Of course, I, I think we talked about this with Stephen Taub, that queuing is a great mechanism for breaking up applications so that you can create scalable components. So the idea that I have a queue of work and then I can have multiple processes, even multiple machines process off that queue to pop them off. It's that one-way communication that makes that really easy to do. Yeah. I do not disagree. I think uh, uh, Carol's made some interesting points here. The only issue, of course, is WCF is just one of the communication means for that. MSMQ right. is a different thing. Right. But be that as it may, a mug is on its way to you, Carell. Thanks for your email. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, anything you want to talk about with us, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Richard, our guest today is Brad Fraser. Brad is a 1985 cum laude graduate of Brigham Young University and a 1988 graduate of University of California Hastings College of the Law, where he earned a position on the college's law review. After law school, he received his Master's of Business Administration degree from the University of Utah. From 1989 to 97, Brad worked at the Boise law firm Elam and Burke, becoming a shareholder in 1997. In 97, Brad accepted an in-house position as Senior Intellectual Property Counsel with Micron Electronics, Incorporated, and remained with Micron through its merger with Interland, Incorporated, now Web.com, the nation's largest web hosting company, eventually becoming Deputy General Counsel to Interland. From June 2003 to February 06, Brad was with MPC Computers, LLC, in Nampa, where he also served as Deputy General Counsel. And MPC was Micron, right, Brad? Yes, MPC was Micron Electronics, and they built and sold fine Micron-branded computers, and then it became MPC Computers, and they sold and sold fine MPC-branded computers until it went bankrupt, unfortunately. As a matter of fact, um, the Franklin's Net Training Room was contained 20 MPC computers when we did that. Brad right. is now a partner at Holly Troxel, where he chairs the firm's internet and IP law practice group. His practice areas include internet law, e-commerce, technology, and software licensing, trademarks and domain names, copyright, media law, computer law, trade secrets, and related transactional work and litigation. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. It's, it's nice to be with you guys. It's an honor to have you here. 
We have had uh, other shows in the past talk about sort of the, the legal aspect of software development, especially for micropreneurs and uh, entrepreneurs in this, you know, self-employed people. But, um, but uh, I think there's so many directions we could go in with this conversation. Um, you know, uh, copyright is a subject near and dear to my heart, being a musician growing up with records. I don't know if anybody out there remembers records. Those were cylindrical discs of plastic that spun around on a turntable. Um, anyway, uh, always wanted to be a rock star and sell records. And now the whole idea of selling CDs has become sort of passe. Right. And uh, the wow, the the internet has certainly changed the music industry, and I'm sure, uh, you know, the the same challenges apply to any digital content. That's right, and those really are. I mean, th- those are derivations and functions of copyright law. It's changed as well, of course, as the modality of as content distributions changed. Internet laws try to had, had to keep up as well. So your your point is well taken. And you know, how is it must be the biggest challenge to try to enforce these laws with digital content of any kind. Just be, I mean, it seems like um, the recording industry of America has set a precedent of just going after select people to make a an example of them to try to to curb behavior. Would you say that that's the that's the tactic that that is being taken mostly? Yes, they have filed the, the RIAA, Recording Industry Association of America, right. who is responsible for enforcing these things, has taken what I sort of refer to as whack-a-mole, you know, that game at the arcades where the mole pops up, right? <laughs> right. So you, they see an infringer pop up and they whack them with a lawsuit. Yeah, whack-a-mole litigation. Now, to be clear, they have filed a lot of litigation, right. and they have attempted to focus really on what, in their view, are the most egregious infringers, the most egregious downloaders and file sharers. Right. But um, you're right. Thus far, the practice continues unabated, and the litigation has really not been that successful. They've, just, they've punished, principally they've punished some people who, frankly, didn't know what they were doing and innocently did it. And that's the result of uh, their efforts thus far. Now, obviously, in the music business, you're talking about a $1 purchase of a, you know, the the digital content is, you know, low price. In the software development business, however, you can spend countless and countless man hours on software and put it out there and you'll find it being pirated and and copied. Um, There are those out there that say, well, if somebody was going to download your software, they weren't going to buy it anyway, and that had been a, a prevalent um, that had been a prevalent attitude, at least in the software companies that I worked with, that uh, said no to uh, any kind of copy protection. But I think the you know the stakes are so high now, and that uh, that 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 attitude is changing a little bit. Well, I, I agree, and as you know, as you both know, it's becoming much more popular cool to, to, to adopt sort of an open source mentality, but that doesn't, that doesn't undermine the underlying you know, thesis that copyright law is alive and well. And if you choose not to employ a purely open source mentality and make your content available, whether it's software or music or video or whatever the case may be, through an open source um, philosophy, uh, copyright law still does pretty well service, actually, to, to give those content owners a remedy and, I think, to, to try to monetize that content, that intellectual property, which is really the goal of all intellectual property law, right, is to, to monetize your intellectual right. assets. Yeah, and protect it so that you can monetize it. Sure. Yeah, it just seems like, like uh, you know, a, the biggest challenge that uh, we've had to face as software developers. 
Uh, understood. And so, by way of by way of sort of extrapolation, you know, we start with foundational intellectual property law, which you're familiar with: trademark, copyright, patent. Uh, trade secrets, and the internet has interestingly developed its own its, its sort of own analogs to each of those. Like in the realm of copyright law, we have the internet-specific Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and in the realm of trademark law, we have the internet-specific Uniform Dispute Resolution Policy promulgated by ICANN, and we have the Anti-Cybersquatting Consumer Protection Act. In the in the realm of trade secrets, we have privacy policies and, and the laws relating to financial information and health information and those privacy laws. So the internet really has uh, I won't call it a, a sea change, whatever that phrase means. I won't call it that. But the internet has the law has done a lot to try to keep up with the internet variants of some of these foundational intellectual property law concepts. So the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was really to criminalize uh, any attempts to foil DRM digital rights management. Well, it has four major parts. That's one of them. But you're right. Yeah, one of them, anti-circumvention is what we call to it. We call it in shorthand. Yes, to to thwart copy protection technology is part of the DMCA. But the other part that I think is almost more interesting is this notion of an aggrieved copyright owner can use the DMCA to cause a website host or service provider to remove uh, allegedly infringing content. So, for example, if one of you had a photograph or a poem or a song or a bit of code on some website somewhere that you had not authorized, without having to hire a lawyer or go to court or get an injunction or pay any money, you could fire off one of these things called a DMCA takedown notice. And if you do it correctly, the service provider or the web host has to expeditiously, says the statute, suspend or disable access to the infringing content. And if they don't do that, then they'll be culpable as well for copyright infringement. So the DMCA, in addition to the anti-circumvention provision you mentioned, creates a very important and powerful safe harbor for for service providers, but it also gives content owners a a powerful tool to remove content from the Internet without having to go to court. Well, and and what happens if, you know, um, you do all that stuff and still they do not take it down? Now you've got to launch an investigation, and as you well know, um, digital evidence in any kind of investigation is very easy to, very easy to tamper with. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, for a photo, somebody is going to, you know, when they do the math in terms of what it's going to cost them to deal with it versus what it's going to cost them to take their chances and roll the dice of having an investigation and all that stuff. Sometimes it's just not worth it. I mean, it, all of these things really just don't bode well for providers of digital content that want to copy the protector or protect their content. Well, let's think about that. Let's assume you have a photograph, all right? And you want to you want to promulgate it either on the internet or in a book or in some place, but you want you're concerned about digital rights. Well, what do you do? First thing that you do is you register the copyright. That's easy. That's cheap. That's right. it's $45, right? Yep. Then you imbue the digital files with digital watermarking or other types of, you know, digital rights management technology so that you can track it. Then, as it appears on the Internet, you either capture the offending image or if it vanishes because, as you say, it's easily manipulated, you use archive.org or some other repository to find an archival copy of it. And most web hosts, most reputable web hosts, do maintain adequate server logs that you can either get with what's called a DMCA subpoena or a regular federal court subpoena. It's not all that hard, frankly. I mean, I appreciate your your comment, but it's not all that hard, frankly, for a content owner to police his or her rights on the Internet, if you know how to do it. Mm -hmm. It, The main thing here that you you said quite casually, but it's not that trivial a thing, is actually tracking infringements. Hmm. Well, are you guys familiar with a company called Attributor? No, tell us. 
Contributor.com, that's what they do. Um, that's their whole gig is they track infringing. Unlike, for example, let's, let me give you an analogy. There's a company here in Boise, Idaho called Mark Monitor. They track infringing domain names and trademarks. But this company called Attributor.com tracks infringing digital content um, like logos and pictures and, and things like that. So if you engage Attributor, they will go out and search the Internet for your content and assist you, if you wish them to assist you, in, in getting it removed. So, sure, you're right. I, I, you have better things to do than sit in front of Google all day you know, and Google search for your images and your content. But there are third-party services like Attributor that help you with that. That's interesting. You mentioned archive.org. Um, I don't know if it was just what I was looking for, but I recently went to archive.org to see if I could find uh, older versions of websites that I was interested in, and they were starkly gone. Um, for the you know, they hadn't been archiving that website for the last few years. I, I wonder if that if that uh, is another example of a website that's run you know on contributions and uh, grants that's just sort of vanishing. Do you, do you see that, or do you think I was just lucky or unlucky, as the case may be? Well, probably some of both. I, I confess that maybe, uh, probably, I'm actually able to retrieve archival copies of websites 70% of the time using archive.org. The other 30% oh, of the time I cannot, right? And yeah. that's because either A, archive.org has not indexed it yet, right? or, or B, uh, they've had a hardware failure because they really are sort of, you know, run with rubber bands and spit, as far yep. as I can tell. Yep. Or C, the, um, they will remove content if you request that it be removed from the archive. So somebody has asked that they remove it. Uh, so there, there, but you know, there are other ways to skin the cat, right? I mean, you can use a cached copy from the, from Google, a Google cached version, mm. or there are other sources that re re retain archival copies of websites. Like, for example, if you, if you ever try to register a domain name at moniker.com, mm. the moniker, I believe, keeps archival copies. And I know a site called Domain Tools does. So if you go out and do a who is on using domaintools.com, mm. it'll spit out a little archival copy of what the website looks like at that domain name. So, you know, archive.org is great, but it's not the only way to see what an archival copy of some content may have looked like. Yeah. Do you also deal with uh, um, movies, videos? Because probably the number one pirating uh, media of choice is is movies, I would say. I don't know if I'm wrong about that. Correct me. But do you also deal with that? Yes, I do. And the analysis is, of course, the same. I mean, first of all, we have to demonstrate that the owner of the content, the movie, has a registered copyright. I can't underscore that enough. That's critical. Right, right. And then once we once we determine and establish that, then the analysis is the same. When, if we find the content, we employ the tools to cause it to be removed yeah. um, using the DMCA or some other tool. But yeah, but yeah, video content is, of course, a, a big deal now. We're, we're chasing it both, of course, in terms of situations like YouTube, uh, where content is, or is snippets are stolen and posted without permission, or just right. you know, full blown. Like for example, when I worked at uh, Interland, you mentioned it in my bio, a web hosting company. Mm -hmm. I'd get I'd get these DMCA takedown notices from the MPAA or the RIAA all the time because what would happen is people would use people would hack into a server and they would they would cause like oh maybe let's say a one terabyte chunk of hard drive space to be hidden and then they would use that as a a, a, a dark network what's there's a better word for that a dark net right a dark net where they would distribute these username and passwords and people could upload and download 
from this hidden one terabyte space space on one of my clients' websites. And so, you know, they'd be seeing all this, they'd get these bandwidth reports, these bandwidth usage reports, and it would be like, you know, 80 terabytes going up and down a day. And they're going, wow, how's this possible? We've had 10 unique site visits today, and yet you're charging me for 80 terabytes of, of bandwidth. Well, you know, and, the, and then the RIAA would send me a takedown notice and say, sure enough, hidden away on this server, some hacker got in and made a dark net with one terabyte of server space. And so they're uploading and downloading. I mean, movies that are movies that just came out, right. you know, they'll go with a digital recorder, make a copy of the movie, upload it to that hidden terabyte of server space, and then people download it through the dark net. And it goes on all the time. Yeah, we we actually got hacked at Carl and Gary's VB homepage back in the day with, uh, with that. Somebody... Um had planted some sort of worm that whenever the computer was to reboot, yeah. the next time it rebooted, it was it, it created this dark net, and then uh, yeah, we we found out about it the same way. The bandwidth was going through the roof, and we found out. right, yeah, very subtle. Um, here's another issue, um, and to, we'll get to software in a minute, but uh, I I do recall at one point missing one of my favorite TV shows, and going out on the internet to try to figure out how I could download it. And after several hours of configuring stuff and figuring stuff out, I found a place where I could download, you know, from a BitTorrent server, the, this this TV program that I had missed. And and then probably about a week later, um, my cable TV company, which was also hosting my internet service, uh, shut me down, shut off my internet. And I called them and I said, well, how come my internet doesn't work? And they say, ah, you downloaded a copy of this particular TV show and you need to remove that from your computer. And uh, so so they were watching that and saw that I had downloaded that. They actually looked at the data that was coming uh, to my computer and determined that that was illegal and blah, blah, blah. My question to them was, well, you know, I I purchased this anyway through my payment that I give you every month for, you know, TV or whatever. So what's the difference whether I download it? And of course, then it hit me, advertising. That's the difference. Because when you download something from the net, uh, it doesn't contain ads usually. And that's what really how they make their money. I see. Don't you think? Well, uh, is that a common well, thing that happens? I don't, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I know that the the owners of copyright, the RIAA and, and others, have Instead of using this whack-a-mole litigation, I know that they have been in talks with the various pipes, the internet service providers and the telephony providers and the various pipes to sniff the content. And if they see something that's suspicious, to suspend it or disable it or interfere with it. And you may, that's what may have happened to you is that yeah. working upstream instead of, you know, going around and suing you individually, it's much easier to go upstream to the server, to the pipe and right. sniff it there than wait till you actually try to download it. So, right. so that's an enforcement technique that some of the content owners have been using recently. And quite frankly, in light of technologies like BitTorrent, um, it's really much more effective. So yeah, it was uh, effective uh, for me. I mean, they held my internet service hostage. Right. And the answer, I, I, I don't think, frankly, is advertising. I think it's the threat of litigation because of cases like Grokster and Napster, which were both very highly publicized Ninth Circuit cases in which it was held that the instrumentality, the instrumentality involved in the dissemination of this copyrighted material was culpable along with the actual user of the content because of these theories called contributory, vicarious, and imputed liability for copyright infringement. Okay, in English, and, please. <laughs> well, okay. Well, for example, if I provide you with an, the, the instrumentality by which you can copy software, 
I buy one copy of software and provide you with the instrumentality that permits you to make multiple copies for free while only one royalty has been paid. Okay. Not only you will be liable for copyright infringement, but I will be as well under these theories of vicarious, contributory, and inducement. And so your upstream, your, your upstream pipe, they don't want to be sued for copyright infringement under I one see. of these theories. So they're just, it's easier for them just to shut you down. Hmm. Interesting. They're, they're providing you with the instrumentality, the means by which, by providing you with access to the Internet, they are contributing or vicariously liable for your acts of copyright infringement, so holds the current state of the law. So, they, of course, they're going to shut it down. They don't want to get sued. Mm, yeah. Well, in that case, it just it doesn't make any sense for me as a consumer point of view because, I, like I said, I've already paid for the content. I'm just getting it in a different way, and I'm still getting it through the, the cable company as you know via internet service but but anyway um the let's talk about software for sure for, we are all software developers who listen to this show and uh, uh i'm wondering if how first of all how do does anybody steal software in terms of uh that's a neat program i think i'll download the source illegally or recompile it and then put my name on it uh, and then try to sell it myself as, or, or does that happen? Or is it more like somebody stole the idea of how this works and that idea is intellectual property or these images or these, this digital piece, you know, digital content or, or, you know, or, or stealing pieces of software. I, I haven't, I, you know, I, the threat back in the eighties when I started, software development was somebody's going to take my program as is you know go in with a with a debugger with a with a you know a hex editor or whatever and change my name to theirs and try to sell it themselves but that doesn't really happen does it no not as much you're you're right the, i think the threat to a code writer today is is a little bit different because of the different distribution methods that the internet has created but but to your point Yes, some copying does still occur. Yes, some theft of the underlying functionality or the idea still does occur. But but those are two different areas of intellectual property law, and I won't go there unless you want me to talk about it. But one is still strictly a copyright law concept. The other is a patent law concept. And I know that you've had a recent uh, presentation or a, a webcast on software patents, so perhaps we don't want to go to that point. But yes, both of those things still do occur. People do copy code under and commit copyright infringement, but they also steal the underlying functionality, which is a form of, of patent infringement. The difference, of course, as you mm. point out, is in the old days, you actually had to go and buy a shrink wrap copy of a, you know, of a jewel case and, mm-hmm. and get to the code that way. But now you've got to hack into a server or you've just got to go, you know, download a copy of it as opposed to, you know, buying something on a CD. Yeah. But, but the problem still persists, yes. I imagine that now with, in the world of services, uh, you know, in, in the cloud, rebranding digital services you know unauthorized is is really a theft i mean that's something that can be easily done yeah. uh, on a website by somebody who knows what they're doing to make it look like this is my service and not you know whose it really is well it, let's assume that you offer a software as a service through a portal and nobody who goes to the site unless they hack will be able to get to the code but they see the functionality and they replicate the functionality, certainly that's going to occur. As an esoteric point, that's not a copyright law issue necessarily. It might be a patent law issue and it might be a trademark law issue. 
So, and just to digress for a moment, the trademark office actually now looks at these things differently as well. Back in the day, when you tried to register a copyright, I'm sorry, register a trademark for the name of software, they assumed you would be disseminating it in an actual package, you know, a shrink-wrapped jewel case with a CD that actually would go to customers, and they would call that software. But now the trademark office looks at it and defines merely the providing of a service over a portal when no code is downloaded as a service. They don't call it software anymore. Mm -hmm. The trademark office doesn't even refer to it as software. It's a service. So, uh, interestingly enough, they are sort of embracing the software as, as a service uh, notion by the fact that many times you just provide these services through a portal and there is no client-side download. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Web UI Test Studio for Silverlight UI testing. If you've already started developing with Silverlight, you'll soon need a solid testing tool for Silverlight UI. Unfortunately, there's no good way to simulate the actual behavior of end users unless you spend days and weeks doing manual testing. But things have changed. The guys at Telerik just introduced the first point-and-click UI testing tool for Silverlight. Web UI Test Studio. Check it out. You can quickly record tests with the cross-browser recorder and enrich them with code if you have more complex scenarios. On top of that, it supports standard controls and Telerik controls. You can verify not only Silverlight, but also complex AJAX applications. And the best part... Web UI Test Studio lives in Visual Studio, so you don't have to leave your favorite development environment. Check it out at Telerik.com slash web-testing-tools. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. Where this really falls down is when we start getting multinational, right? I think we're seeing other countries where the laws aren't the same or certainly not enforced the same way. And the Internet makes those distances transparent. You know, that's a really interesting point because I don't know if you've been following it in the trade publications, but there is something that's being whispered about, and they're very closed door about it, but there's this thing, if you want to go Google it, it's called the um, Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Act. And that's the ATCA. I apologize. The acronym is escaping me. Anti-Counterfeiting trade, trade Act or something, ACTA. Trade Agreement. Okay, so you're familiar with it. And, and in there, if, you've, if you're reading and following it, they are actually trying to place some DMCA-like provisions. Because you're right. The DMCA stops at the border, right? So right. you can't use it to take down content that sits on a server in the Grand Caymans, obviously. Right. But if this ACTA goes through and they put DMCA-like provisions in it, then you may actually have extraterritorial effect and be able to invoke an international treaty to cause a server in another country, assuming they're a signatory, to take down that content as well. It's actually pretty without interesting. A, without a warrant. Sure. And I think right. the Pirate Bay was one of the things that brought this about. I guess the Pirate Bay is a huge website that's technically offshore. It is. And it's in its own legal jurisdiction, but uh, they've managed to use the loopholes of the law to get around uh, their stuff. So, I, I, you know. That's probably probably one of the things that caused this to come in. Indeed. And what's really coming to play is the world economy. Those nations that are most recognized as infringing jurisdictions, they recognize that, hey, we're going to be losing out on a share of, of revenue if we don't try to play ball and try to prevent piracy. I read just today in a trade journal about there being additional discussions now about addressing piracy in, in foreign countries. But uh, one of my clients just came back from China on a, on a, on a uh, meeting with his uh, manufacturing vendors. 
And he was joking with me via email. He said, hey, do you want me to bring you a Blu-ray copy of The Blind Side? There's one right here at a street vendor for $2. <laughs> you know, and I mean, so what are you going to do? Well, and, I, and I'm looking at the ACTA docs here, and the signatories so far are largely G8 countries. China, notably, is not on the list. Right. Yeah. Well said. We always uh, said back in, in the days of Crescent Software, Richard, that when we sell, if we wanted to sell our software in China, we'd sell exactly one copy. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I like that. That's exactly right. And, and we're the trying rest to it takes care of itself. We're trying to increase our sales in China this year to two. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well said. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, and, it, and it, you almost wonder if this whole model of copyright is obsolete. Like the the reality of enforcing these things is so great that you're better off innovating your way out of this. That it's we we have the first version, so we have a head start on anybody who's trying to knock it off and can stay ahead of anyone by continuing to innovate. That's that's right. And you know, interestingly enough, that is what I'm telling more and more of my clients because they're frustrated. They'll say. Well, there are inherent weaknesses, as you both know, in patent law, and right. we won't visit that today. But there, are, and there are inherent weaknesses, as you've just pointed out, Richard, in copyright law. It doesn't provide a lot of really easily and really effective remedies in the internet space. So, what are we recommending? Just as you pointed out, differentiation, uh, segmentation, brand awareness, customer service, better quality product, those types of things that are, that are more that are more quantitative. I'm sorry, qualitative. And um, and and then you may not be as uh, sh- aggrieved if somebody steals it because they're still going to come back to you as a source because you're better. So yeah, I agree with you. Well, and it, and it begs, you know, we're almost seeing this culturally that those that would hide behind litigation of their patents are the weak ones. You don't need to protect that stuff. That stuff's last week. What are you making <laughs> this week? That's right. That's exactly right. And so, I mean, it's, what, you, what have you done for me lately, right? It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just keep on moving moving forward. Well, and, you know, here I am with a company that does have a quote-unquote, using my, my, my lawyer's terms, a moat of patents around our technology. Yes. But also recognize that, so what? <laughs> you, you know, the reality of enforcing a patent is years of litigation, and winning that is like winning an earthquake. Well, that's right. And, 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 and that's why, in my view, the, the, again, to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is such an innovative thing because you don't have to file a lawsuit. You don't have to hire a lawyer. You don't have to get an injunction. You just have to type out a DMCA takedown notice that has the five requisite paragraphs in it, find out who the web host is, hope they're in the United States, and send it off. And in my experience, 98% of the time, they'll respond to that. And that's really, really a remarkable success rate. As, as you both may know, under the DMCA, the person who posted the content can file what's called a counter notification, and they have to put the content back up. But in my experience, it's less than 10% of the time that they'll get a counter notification, and your DMCA, your little cheap you know, DMCA notice that you email in, uh, wins the day. So just the basic act of, of saying, in the correct language, that's not supposed to be there is usually enough. Yes, in my experience. And the reason is, as I mentioned before, because people do not want to get sued for copyright infringement. And these cases have now broadened the the range or the effectiveness of copyright infringement litigation to in- include 
contributory and vicarious infringers, and we don't want to go down that path. Of course, I represent right now, I don't know, two or three companies that, that act in the role of service providers for purposes of the DMCA, and I act as their designated agent, meaning I'm the guy that gets the notices of infringement from aggrieved parties out there in the world. Well, I look at these, and of course I'm going to tell my client, take it down, because the, re- the alternative is for them to be sued in a copyright infringement lawsuit and spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars defending it when what we're talking about, what, a $29.95 a month shared hosting account? Well, it's, it's a no-brainer. Of course you're going to take it down. Yeah, just not worth the effort. And that's where, you know, again, most of this is casual infringement. This is not with a lot of intent. That's right. Um, but to be clear, the DMCA can be used to, and, and is principally addressed as an initial matter against even major infringers. Uh, a full-blown, full-blown first-run motion picture that's on a site somewhere, of course, they'll first use the DMCA because it doesn't make sense to fire off, you know, a full-blown copyright infringement lawsuit first right. thing. It's never your first salvo. Yeah, don't don't go too far. Don't waste the money and the effort when this might be able to be cleaned up a little more gracefully than that. I, I, that's right. The the problem, of course, is that you do get in is it the Pirate Bay scenario where aren't they on Sea Island like they're their own country? And- That's right. And so and so you you begin to scratch your head and say, well, what can we really do to address some of these issues if the DMCA doesn't help us? We invade. <laughs> well, that's, invade. That's right. Invade. The military that's right. solution. That's right. But but you know, if you let's let's play that hypothetical out. So let's assume that it's they're extraterritorial and the DMCA won't work. Well, you can you can still file a lawsuit in the United States. You can get in a judgment against them, and there are international compacts and treaties such that you send a copy. You have your your U.S. judgment domesticated in the foreign country and enforced. And sure, it's expensive and it takes a lot of time, but there are ways to do it. And for big companies like, now China's a different situation, of course, but I mean, for big companies like Microsoft and Nike and, you know, and Oracle and, and others that have a huge investment in intellectual property, it makes sense to pursue those. But ultimately, when you get to a certain size where literally you're able to operate offices in the countries of concern, working within their own infrastructure of uh, intellectual property. That's right. That's, that's exactly that's, right. Uh, red, big bucks. I mean, that's, that's just right. a, for the average guy out there who's trying to build an app and throw it up into the world. It's it's out of their scope. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I know when we originally spoke about what we wanted to talk about today, we didn't want to focus, you know, only on intellectual property no. because there are many other facets to, to internet law that I think are interesting. All of which harken back to foundational principles of non-internet law, like for example, the law of trespass. This is one of my favorite examples. There is a law called trespass that says that if I walk on Richard's lawn without Richard's permission, that's trespass. And just the act of my encroaching on his personal or his real property and bending some blades of grass is actionable as trespass. Okay, it's a it's a 600 year old legal concept. Well, in in an extension of that in the internet space, there's a famous case called eBay versus Bitter's Edge, where the defendant. Uh, used robots and other means to sniff content at the plaintiff's website. And by sending the, sending those text files or those robots or whatever they were to sniff that content, that was a form of trespass. Hmm. Sort of like that great Star Trek episode, you know, where the war is fought in cyberspace with the computers. Right. Kind of the same thing. I mean, they send, they send these little bits of code onto this server to sniff it and see what there is and get some price data. I think it was price data. And there was, there was no other incursion. There was no hack. It was all lawful. But they said that that was a form of trespass. So isn't that an interesting, interesting. extension yeah. of a 600-year-old legal concept 
into the internet space. Is there a and, license that everybody has to view the web content through a browser only? You know. Well, but they were they were going beyond what was purely visible on a browser. I think well, they were somehow I mean, yeah. going. Yeah, they were going deeper than that, and that's what created the uh, the, the action for trespass. So, you know, we as internet lawyers, we've had to be extraordinarily creative to address these things. Uh, what about what about um, you know what about hacking? The statutes really didn't contemplate that. They contemplated like wiretapping. The, the existing federal statutes contemplated uh, your literally hacking into a or tapping into a phone line and listening covertly. Well, how does that apply to an email traveling through cyberspace that may not even really ever go over a classic phone line, you know, to use that? So many of the federal laws have had to have been rewritten, and many of them simply still don't apply. We always, every day we struggle to find remedies for our clients in the internet law space. And that's why we come up with things like, well, let's try trespass. You just kind of throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Mm. Yeah, and, and really let people uh, project the metaphor onto right. the digital space. That's right. Here's another quick example of that in the law of contract. In the old days, you had to have three things to have a contract. We all learned this in law school. Offer, acceptance, and consideration. And those things were manifested typically, right, by there ultimately being a signed document, a hard copy document with ink signatures on it. Well, when was when was the last time you actually signed a piece of paper? I I, I don't even I don't even sign letters to clients anymore. I haven't signed anything. I can't remember the last time I actually put ink on a piece of paper. Nobody does that anymore. So how do these old paradigms translate to the internet space? And so we what we what we say is that um, if there is a sufficient manifestation manifestation of assent a s s e n t to the transaction, then that will work. And if you click on an I agree button, even though that may not be you clicking, even though that maybe it really is only attributable to you by virtue of an IP address, we're going to count that as, you know, like tantamount or analogous to an ink signature on paper. So we're, we're doing our best. You know, we're doing our best to, to keep up. I'm finding working with international companies, they still want ink. They'll take the facts, and then I have to mail off the other stuff. So they don't want to hold up the work. I'll yeah. scan the document and send it to them. It's signed. But right. they, they always need the paper in the end. Well, good for them, because I, frankly, even though this is what I do every day, I, this is the space in which I practice, I still, I guess, pref- would prefer that a client actually physically sign a piece of paper. Maybe, maybe you remember the, the great ballyhoo with which President Clinton enacted the e-sign act, Electric, electronic signatures and global and international commerce. That one right. I think is the, the long name. And remember, he had this this card, and he sw- he swiped it through this card reader, and that was his way of signing the bill. Remember all that? And we all thought back then, oh well, nobody, we'll all just walk around with these cards and we'll swipe them for our signatures. Well, right. that's not what that statute was about, right? That's that's just that was just press. What that statute really is about is it says that a contract cannot be avoided simply because the signature is electronic. That's all that statute says. Right. It, does, it does not proscribe a way you sign a contract electronically or designate you know, that you have to use a particular kind of signature methodology. All it says is that an electronic signature is as good as an ink one. And so, you know, again, another example of how they're attempting to find relevant analogs to traditional foundational law in the internet space. What I like about that is that they didn't try and redefine the concept of a signature. They just extended it so that all right. of the existing case law around a signed document still applied. That's right. So look, let me well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Now, which I just thought was very clever that it was it's one of those few cases where writing less meant more. Right. That's right. Well, let me give you a fourth example or third example. I've forgotten. I've lost count here. But let's just say uh, traditional foundational trademark law 
says that for there to be trademark infringement, the infringer has to use, use the thing as a trademark. Use, U-S-E, is foundational to trademark law. Well, what if I go out and register a domain name and put no site live? It's just parked, a parked domain name that incorporates a famous third-party trademark. Is that trademark use? Am I infringing their trademark? And so the law is in flux on that issue, but it's, it, it creates the, it, 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 it raises awareness of the idiosyncratic nature of internet law because you have to redefine all these traditional notions. Well, is it use? They, they registered a domain name that incorporates a third party trademark in which they have no interests, but they haven't appended it to a good and sold it. They're not offering a service for sale in connection with this thing. They've just parked a domain name. And my favorite example of that, if you guys want to do a quick who is, if one of you has a browser open, you know, do a quick who is lookup on the domain name microsoftsucks.com. And you'll see, of course, that it's not owned by Microsoft. It's not. owned by a guy named Dan Parisi, and you, if you if you dabble in this space at all, you'll recognize that name, Dan Parisi. And Microsoft doesn't own MicrosoftSucks.com, not because they're not pissed off about it, but because Dan Parisi's done nothing wrong. The law does not contemplate hmm. that you can't own a domain name that incorporates a third party trademark. So hmm. there are still some areas um, in which the law hasn't quite caught up, and that might be an example of one in the internet space. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. This might be a completely sh- uh, a complete shift of topic here, but but uh, but it's one that I think about a lot. DRM is it dead? And the even the RIAA spokesperson said that it was dead for music, but in software, uh, it seems like it's just getting going. Digital rights management. Yeah, no, I I have not heard or even seen it intimated that DRM was dead. I, I know that they're struggling with how best to implement it, but um, I don't see it as dead at all. Tell me why you you think or you've heard that DRM is dead. Well, I'm talking in the context of music. Yes. Well, uh, just, even, just because it's too hard to no, well, it, so we just throw up our hands in despair, or what? No, 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 no. It's not me. It's that uh, even companies like BMG and uh, Apple with iTunes and um, uh-huh. uh, major labels have have pl- have dropped it. So, sort of in favor. I hate to use this term so so glibly, but sort of in favor of open source. No, no, no. I know, I know what you're saying, and your point is well taken. That okay, the way it was implemented was dropped, yeah. but they they clearly have an interest in protecting their rights. Yeah. Well, maybe I agree. Maybe because do you do you believe that there is sort of a uh, a state of the art DRM technology that's employed in the music space? You tell me. I mean, what no, do there, you, what do, do they use? There was, and uh, you know, the media it basically came down to media players, whether it's software or iPods or. Yeah. Uh, ways that you purchase music like iTunes or whatever, locking you out of the ability to freely copy music that you have bought and purchased from this device to that device without having to worry about how many copies I have left or any of mm-hmm. that stuff. Sure. Because you find yourself in the situation where you've purchased the same album three or four times just because you've got a new media player. Uh, and, and it's 
to the uh, to affected this day. If you have an iPod and you use iTunes to download your stuff, you will have a hard time getting it off of your iPod onto some other device. Should you move? Should you get another playback device? Which doesn't seem fair. Well, yes, but isn't that an example of Apple's employing DRM? The fact that iTunes is proprietary. I yeah, think it exa- is exactly. Okay. So that's why I was confused. I mean, I don't think it's dead. I mean, I think Apple is employing it very aggressively. And well, the, reason, probably... the only reason they can, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the only reason yeah. they can is because they have the most popular player. Uh-huh. You know, it's the one that is uh, that people will put up with and tolerate. But for all the millions right. of other players, you know, they're, 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 the value of the other players and the other platforms is that they're highly configurable and open source and all this other stuff. That's right. And yet, isn't it interesting, though, that Apple and iTunes and the iPod remain, obviously, the industry leader despite that? That's true. They've figured out how to do it. But largely, they've taken DRM off now for exactly that reason. Yes. It's like Jobs basically forced the issue. He made the iPod popular enough that enough people used DRM that the pain became very apparent. And then finally, he had enough clout to say, that's it, no more DRM and was able to drive it away. Well, let's talk about that. Do you believe then that that will lead to a diminution in Apple's revenue from the sale of uh, or the licensing of iTunes, music via iTunes? Well, I think the evidence points to it not. They've only ever made more money. The only people who didn't make money were the publishers who refused to remove the DRM and pulled their stuff off iTunes. Right, but they they sort of have the, the, the... They have the majority in terms of how people listen to music. It's just like Walmart. Walmart has the biggest group of consumers buying their stuff so they can go to their providers and sort of bully them into, uh, you know, into dropping their prices and things like that. I mean, just because people want to use the iPod and they want to use iTunes, which, you know, you can't say anything, there's anything wrong with that, but. Uh, but it, but does, but they are sort of in a class by themselves, though. And the rest of us who just want to use, you know, our PCs and download music and and manage our own stores of of tunes without having to worry about it, the, we're the ones that suffer, right? Well, that's right. And there's always going to be some upstream owner that's going to try to control how the downstream user is going to employ that content and. That's just the current scheme, and right. uh, you know, and, and I embrace that because I, I frankly am on the side of the content owners in this battle. I, I recognize sort of the anarchistic open source mentality of the internet, and I, I get all that because I practice in this space. But at the end of the day, I, I also respect those people who have written code and written songs and, and have have cr- cr- made creative contributions to our society. And I honestly right. believe they should be they should be compensated for that. And first of all, just for the record. I'm with you because I am a musician and a digital content creator, uh, and and I do have my songs that I plan on selling on CD or somehow. So I'm with you. And and when a new album comes out by a band I like, I buy the album because I want to support them. I, right. That's because I like the band. I want them to succeed. That's how you do it. But um, but I you know, but all by the same token, when I buy an album, I want to be able to make copies of that you know i mean i never had the ability to make copies of lps before so there is you know there is the 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 spoiled factor but digital content i should be able to make copies of for my own personal use without having to worry about it it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing to uh to deal with and i i see both sides of the of this of the situation as an artist here's how i analyze it as as a lawyer i start every one of these inquiries i start with who owns the intellectual property? 
everything resolves to that issue. Well, not everything, but 99% of the things I deal with resolves to that issue. Who owns the intellectual property? So speaking of music, who owns the copyright? And then the second question is, all right, now that we've identified the owner, what license, if any, have they granted me to use it? Right. That's it. And and now there are some implied licenses. For example, you are under federal copyright law permitted the ability to make one archival copy of content for backup purposes only. You can do that, of course. But anything else must be expressly granted to you by the licensor. And if if not, morally, ethically, legally, it's my view that that's wrong. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess it's something we take for granted as as uh, as digital people that you know right. we have. We have the ability to burn a disc and to listen in a car and to listen on our iPod and to listen at our desks. And, you know, when somebody tells me it's ethically and morally wrong to do that, I kind of have to say, hmm. Well, well so when we get both- to this, situa- this common situation where you suddenly reveal to everyone, by the way, we've all been breaking the law. So why <laughs> do we care? Why do you care? Well, y- you probably don't. And that's why, in my view, it comes back to sort of this sort of, I guess, patriarchal worldview of mine that, you know, we, we need to raise good kids, right? And teach them, teach them to obey the law. Maybe that sounds silly, but no, no, it's, it's, kind true. Of, it's kind of an ethical, moral issue. It, it really is. It's frankly. true. Well, you know, as somebody who is about to sell two albums in cyberspace, I want the people who buy my albums to be able to freely do whatever they want with it. I just don't want them to make copies and give them to people who would otherwise purchase it. Well, then you, you, as the owner of that content, uh, control the means by which it is disseminated, and you control the license rights. So you can use, for example, a Creative Commons license. You can use an open source license. You can use, you, as the owner of that content, control how it's to be used downstream by third parties. Under well, you the say control, but I have no control. I mean, that's a, that's a pipe dream, control. Well, you only I have, control have control over the law, but I don't have control over what people do with it. No, that's true. But you do have the ability to at least, if you, if you, you do have legal rights and you can have remedies that you can employ. Like, for example, who will own the copyright to this webcast that we're recording today? Do you know? Yeah, um, we don't, we don't actually have a copyright on it. You know, we, we can say, we say that, uh, you know, that you can download it here, but we freely do, we do not have a copyright, so we encourage people to, to well, but you, copy but it you, as much as possible. But you do. But but you do. You do own a copyright. By by the virtue of the fact this is being recorded, you, someone, is creating and owning a copyright. A okay. copyright exists by virtue of the act of creation. We don't have now, a registered copyright. That's, that's, that's fine. But let's assume someone were to take the webcast and create an unauthorized derivative work of it to change your words, to make you say slanderous things against the Jewish community right. or against, against homophobic comments or something like that that was completely objectionable. Yeah. Would you not want to seek recourse for that? Yeah, of course. But see, you can't without invoking your rights under copyright law. So it is important. Hmm. I think you just gave our listeners a bad idea, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if that's the case, then with all due respect, I guess the owners of the copyright need to register it so that they have some remedies that they can pull out of their hat. That's a good idea. Richard, make a note of that. All right. Yes. We'll have to get back to you on that. So I appreciate the fact that this, I, I, again, this is such a misused buzzword, but I appreciate the fact you want to have, I guess, an open source view of what people do with your content. Right. And it's not copyrighted, but it is. You do own a copyright, sure. and, and you do have remedies that you can employ. And I make that point only because I think it maybe assists the listeners in recognizing that even content that they don't think they have rights in, they do, and they really can stand up and assert those rights, even, mm. in, even in the Internet space. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
let's get back to the co- the the open source side of things because we did start off this conversation around the the IP rules and so forth, people protecting their their source code. But open source seems to be another approach to this entirely, where I'm I'm sort of putting the source out there. I'm not compiling or obfuscating or so forth. But there's a it seems like there's a whole other set of rules around this. Yes. Well, my view of open source is that it is a licensing philosophy, not an abrogation of copyright. So highfalutin words, right? But but indeed, you have you own the copyright in this recording. You do by operation of copyright law. Mm-hmm. You choose to make it available for people to presumably download these podcasts or copy them or reproduce them and mm-hmm. put them on their own website. Mm-hmm. You have employed, whether you knew it or not, an open source licensing philosophy. Did you have to do anything? Did you have to say the words magic words open source somewhere on your website? Did you have to file a piece of paper somewhere? Did you have to put a disclaimer somewhere that says, you know, Richard and Carl make this available under open source? No, you didn't. It's a mindset. You own the copyright and you you choose to to not restrain downstream users' use of your content, that is open source. And that's mm-hmm. all it really is. It's a licensing philosophy. Yeah. It's not a piece of paper. It's not magic words. And so I get all I get spun around because you know people say, well, this is open source code, so we can do blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, how do you know it's open source? Well, because it was on the internet. And so we downloaded it. We right-clicked and we downloaded the source code. Therefore, it's open source. Well, that's simply not true. You know, open source is in the mind of the copyright owner, and the copyright owner only can determine whether the thing is disseminated as open source. Mm. Interesting. So, but there's a lot more to it than this now, too, right? There's, uh, we've got all these different kinds of, like, the GNU licenses and the BSD licenses and so forth that, that try and articulate variations on this. Well, indeed, and your point your point is that it, it's all a matter of contract law. Maybe that wasn't the maybe that's not what you're actually saying, but you're right. It's a matter of contract law. Again, we start with who owns the copyright, and then they decide how they're going to permit third parties to use that content, if at all. Are we going to have a very aggressive, one-sided, protective license like a Microsoft license? Or are we going to have a more uh, open mentality, like the GNU General Public License, and say, hey, everybody can use the source code, and you're free to copy it and make derivative works of it. The only thing that we require is that you downstream license your works under a similar open source license. That's still a contractual covenant that you're agreeing when you use the GNU General Public License. You, you can't you cannot obtain a patent or protect a copyright in something you write under GNU Open, the GNU GPL. You have to abide by those contractual covenants. And if you don't, what happens? A, a quiz. If you don't, if, let's assume that you uh, license something under GNU GPL and you write some code under the GNU GPL and you distribute it to a third party and you attempt to assert a proprietary right to it. What happens? Free Software Foundation will sue you for copyright infringement and breach of contract. Really? Yeah. They do, Eben Oglin, that's not his name, the guy that's the head guy, at, I can't remember, Andrew, the guy at Free Software Foundation, the guy with the wild hair and the wild beard that wrote the GNU General Public License, his name right. escapes me, but that guy. He, they sue people for copyright infringement and breach of contract all the time. So isn't that sort of ironic that Mr. Open Source is suing people for copyright infringement because hmm. they don't strictly abide by <laughs> the terms of the GNU General Public License? That is funny. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, open source to me is a really interesting topic because people think, well, open source means no copyright. Not true. Open source simply means that the owner of the copyright has chosen to be less restrictive on the rights that it chooses to grant to downstream third parties and say Microsoft does. That's all it means in my opinion. You know, I'm I'm you know, I just got curious about Facebook because I'm wondering what who owns the the stuff that I put up on Facebook and the answer is not any one person. I mean 
just because you record content into your own recording device and post it on Facebook doesn't mean you own the copyright to it. If you're filming something that is already copyright protected, you are infringing. Um, but what about content that you publish that is your own words, your own pictures, pictures of you, you know, these are things that I think about. Who owns that stuff? Does Facebook own it? Well, let's begin foundationally with the notion that the author owns the copyright. Mm -hmm. The author is the one who creates the tangible embodiment of the creative idea, meaning, literally, the one who types the words into the computer, the one who operates the, photo, the camera, the one who operates the video camera, the one who operates the sound recording machine. Mm. He owns, cr creates and owns a copyright. That's all that has to be done. So if you are the author and you post content to Facebook, you own the copyright, unless, like Facebook tried to do somewhat infamously not that long ago, that famous Facebook land grab, where they tried to say <laughs> that they own the rights to the stuff you post, and if you terminate your Facebook account, you assign and transfer ownership of the copyright so they tried to that? them. Oh, yeah, that was yeah, the famous Facebook land grab. That was like in the last six months, and they got... Oh man, they just got in huge trouble about that. It and was they, an they explosion. Actually recanted that. Really yeah, they, serious freak out. Wow, yeah, no, they, I totally missed that. Yeah, they re completely recanted. But but the moral of the story is, you know, read the terms of service. So before you go out and start blogging and putting up comments and photos on Facebook, it behooves you or anyone, frankly, to read the terms of service because, as we established earlier, that's a contract. And if it says in there, Richard. I think that was Richard speaking. If it says in there, uh, I, Richard, hereby assign, transfer, and set over to Facebook all of my right, title, and interest in all content that I post to my Facebook account. And I hereby warn and represent that I am the sole and only author of that content, and I will indemnify and defend Facebook and hold it harmless for any claims of copyright infringement made against Facebook by third parties. And you click on I agree because you don't read it. Well, you've now contractually covenanted that every blog post, every photo, every video that you upload to your Facebook account, Facebook owns. You had that one memorized. That was a little scary. <laughs> Just I tore that written, out. Yeah, I, have I have written that phrase probably 10,000 times I in my bet. career. That's why I know it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, man, I could go on talking about this stuff for a long time, which is kind of scary for me because usually legal topics tend to make my eyes roll back in my head. But, but this has been very engaging. Well, thank you. I mean, this this hits you right at home, right? Because oh, this certainly. is what you guys do. You guys are both content creators, and your listeners are content creators. They certainly you are. Know, they, the, your, the people who are listening to this who are code writers, I want to stress this. Remember that they own the copyright in the works that they create. They are the authors. And then the only thing that will change that paradigm is if they transfer ownership away in assigned writing. I can't tell you how important that is, because how many times have you guys heard this? Well, the client paid for it, so the client owns it. Yeah. Unless it's specifically a work-for-hire agreement, that's not true, right? Well, work-for-hire is a misused term in copyright law, and I won't go there. Let me just summarize and say, it doesn't matter who pays for it. What matters is, is there a signed contract by which the author transfers ownership of the work to the contractor, to the yeah. person who engages them? And, of course, the exception is if they're employees. If you're an employee then your employer owns the rights. But most of the guys I'm thinking who are code writers and might be listening to this probably aren't employees or probably work as independent contractors. Mm. And that's a very different thing. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, well, Brad, this has been a a, a very quick hour for, <laughs> for us. It just flew by. Thank you so much. And uh, hey, remember the poor man's copyright? 
where yeah. you, do you do you still recommend people do that? If uh, you know, take put something on a CD, mail it to yourself, registered mail, and leave it unopened in a safe deposit box. Sure, it, it has no legal efficacy, but if it really? makes you feel good, yeah, if it, it, yeah, it, truly, what it does is it, is it helps you establish it's one piece of proof yeah. as to the date of authorship. Right. That's all it does for you. It has no other copyright law significance or efficacy. It is one piece of evidence. But it does. But it does pretty firmly establish a uh, a period of time before which, uh, or after which the the content was created. That's right. That's one good thing it will do for you. If you can clearly establish the date on which you mailed it to yourself, yeah. and that envelope can be is demonstrably unsealed, then mm. you're right. It establishes or helps establish a date of first authorship. But that regrettably is not the whole you know no, end no, game of in copyright not. but but it's but so that's why uh, bless their hearts the poor man's copyright sure if it makes you feel better go for it but it's not it's not the panacea it's not going to prove that it's your content it's going to prove when it was that's that's yeah. all it's going to prove yeah that's okay. right all right good thanks very much brad my, my pleasure gentlemen thanks for your time and i've enjoyed our conversation so have we and we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van 